Just connecting with our guest tonight, folks. Should be up in a second. Hello. Hi, Michael. It's Brent Holland. Uh, how you doing, Brent? We're ready good. to go, bud. Okay, good to go. Showtime. What have you done with Kevin? He can't go home. It's not safe there. I told him that. Kevin Crowder's blood? Yes. Did you hurt him? No. I'm not the one that wants to hurt him. If it's not you, then who is it? I was only asked to protect the boy. By who? Who asked to protect him? God. <laughs> it's quite a long-distance call, isn't it? You don't understand. Unless someone protects Kevin... It's the end of the world as we know it, right? He who has ears, let him hear. And he that has a tongue, let him speak. Now tell me where he is. You believe me, don't you? I mean, you must wear that as a reminder. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm pumped tonight, really excited about our guest. Michael Berryman is with us. Yeah, isn't that great? So, folks, there I was as a young teenager, long time ago. Okay, not that long, but some time ago, in the backseat of a van, glued to something called a drive-in movie screen. Now, I was too scared to look. I was too terrified to look away for fear of missing anything. Now, the movie playing, of course, was the horror classic, Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. And the drive-in, folks, was the perfect, the venue, perfect to venue to sit in a car with clouds edging closer to the top of the giant screen in front of us and lightning flashing. A thunder summerstorm was on its way, and the star of the movie our guest tonight, Michael Berryman, was right there on the screen. Now, Michael's chilling rendition of a character named Pluto in The Hills Have Eyes gave this host many sleepless nights, and I want to thank Michael personally for that. <laughs> You're <way>. very welcome. <laughs> Michael Berryman's list of credits would take up the full hour tonight, folks, but here's a few. You've seen Michael in the Oscar-winning One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where he played opposite Jack Nicholson, Army of the Damned, Star Trek Four and Five, The Devil's Rejects, Below Zero, The X-Files, and Death House. But there's far more to Michael Berryman than his acting credits. Michael's a deep thinker and cares deeply about people. Get ready to be truly inspired tonight. By the way, folks, Michael is ranked, are you ready for this? Number 27 on EW's Smartest People in Hollywood list. Your host, by the way, folks, didn't fare so well. I didn't make the list at all. Sorry. Michael is passionate about the environment, protection, and lived on a wolf sanctuary for years. Michael and his wife, Patty have a farm in North California where they grow walnuts, apples, pears, cherries, persimmon, and plum orchards. They also raise their beloved horses. Michael enjoys baking fresh fruit pies and has promised to send me the recipes for all and his address for testing so I can go down there and test them firsthand. It's my great pleasure to welcome Michael Barryman to the show for the first time, but most definitely not the last. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much. It's uh, good to be on board. Thank you. Um, you won't remember this, but we had actually met at a Comic-Con in Montreal uh, three years ago when oh. I was speaking to you there. Yeah. And do you remember somebody that looked like Brad Pitt? 
that wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, was, that was a great. That was a great convention. Thank you. I'm glad you had a good time in my hometown. Okay, I was wondering if we can get this out of the way right away and talk about your condition, which is hypohydriotic ectodermal dysplasia. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about that, and I'm just going to tell the folks, hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia is one of about 150 types of ectodermal dysplasia in, hum in human beings. Now, this happens usually before birth. These disorders result in the abnormal development of structures including the skin, hair, nails, teeth, and sweat glands. Now, Affected individuals tend to have sparse hair, abnormal or missing teeth, and no sweat glands. And oddly, largely affects boys. Now, there's some dangerous things that are associated with this condition. Of course, without sweat glands, you cannot sweat. And that can lead to hypothermia, which can potentially cause brain damage. So, can we start off and perhaps talk about your dad, uh, Hiroshima? Uh, Sloan Berryman, yeah, uh, the neurosurgeon, yeah. and what took yes, place in 1947? Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, my father was John Sloan Berryman. He was a neurologist. He graduated from uh, USC. Um, he was a brain surgeon. He was attached to, uh, he, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy as a naval surgeon. He was attached to the uh, 333 Third Marine Corps, uh, uh, the division company, and well, anyway, he went with the Marines. Uh, he was stationed in Okinawa, and then he went up to Japan after they dropped the uh, atom bomb and the hydrogen bomb. He was on a secret mission. I have some letters that he had sent to my mother. He wasn't supposed to. Uh, describing the conditions at Ground Zero at Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and he sent some photographs. In the photographs, you can see uh, vaporized uh, um, human images uh, along the walls of, uh, of the cities. Um, he uh, came home uh, from the war, and he was, um, well... When he came home, uh, in one of the letters, he states to my mother, he says, I can't wait to, you know, I have an older sister, uh, two years old. He says, I can't wait to, you know, get back uh, home safely and, uh, you know, have another child. Well, I was the next child. Uh, ironically, uh, um, splitting the atom was uh, like something we never should have done, number one. Number two, I think most people uh, would agree that the science fiction is... Uh, forward thinking and that the most brilliant minds write science fiction and they are mostly cautionary tales with lots of humanity as the base of the structure of the stories. So that being said, um, my father comes home glowing and my mother uh, gave, um, I, was, I was born um, premature and I had all of those conditions. I had, had my teeth were rotten, they were all they were taken out, uh, probably at age, I don't know, three or four. Uh, you know, no sweat glands, no working sweat glands, no ability to dissipate body heat, uh, no fingernails. I had a, I had hair. I remember, I remember the one morning on a Saturday morning, I went to um, 
the hospital, uh, my parents took me to have me have a, uh, um, a haircut. I was happy about that. The next thing I know, I wake up and I have uh, bandages about two inches thick all around my head. They literally skull had been fused, so they had cut it into like uh, you know continents, so to speak, uh, so it would expand as the brain continued to grow larger. Uh, if they had not done that, I would have been blind and then uh, died of uh, um, cerebral uh, pressure, most likely. Uh, growing up as a child, you know, some of my fingers and toes would uh, were open wounds. Um, I, uh, the summer and, and heat, uh, warm, warm time of the year, has always been problematic. It never gets better with anyone with this condition. <clears throat> um uh, and there's some other issues, like I had to have dentures when I was like about four years old. Um, and you move onward in life, you know, but yeah. Can, can we happened. stay there when you were a young child? Because I'm sure there's a lot of students listening right now that may be faced with a similar type of affliction in terms of perhaps going through some type of surgery or some kind of trauma. How did you stay... How did you stay focused? How did you stay sane when you were going through all that as a child? Where did you go well, um, in your head? As a very young child, um, I remember vividly sitting in a barber chair. Uh, there's tile on the walls. I remember uh, watching my hair fall into my lap, and I, I probably cried. I wasn't too happy about it. And then I remember in recovery, um, they secure your head so you can't move around because they basically cut the top of my skull into various portions um, and then um, wrapped it all up, hoping that uh, it would create new bone growth at the uh, where this where the uh, um, incisions were in the skull, so the brain would continue to grow. Um, it was a children's hospital at the work. My father was a brain surgeon at the time, and he. Um, observed the uh, procedure. I remember one day showing him my report card and he was signing it and he said to me, you can get better grades, you have a wonderful brain, I have seen it. So that was like, what? Um, <laughs> um, so I always tried to do better. Um, when I came out of... Um, when I came back to consciousness, I was in a bed, like I said, and I couldn't see. Um, I was basically blind for quite a while, and I slowly had a, a, a little bit of vision, and the, the uh, circular um, um, edges of my vision was like a, a corona. It was kind of like a, you know, glowing gold, and it got larger each day. Uh, the first image I remember was my... Uh, parents gave me a little box of uh, cowboys and Indians and horses, and uh, each of the uh, humans would have implements in their hands, like spears, guns, etc. And I couldn't see the whole image of the package. I had to like pan it across my field of vision. And w what I re recollect back then as a child, probably five years old, maybe six, uh, not sure, um, I I saw these magnificent animals, the horses, uh, incredible, and these people, 
and I'm going, wow, the cowboys and uh, the Native Americans can ride horses. That's a wonderful skill. Wow, they have shared interests. Wow, they have shared skills and abilities. Wow, why are they killing each other? I was six years old. Wow. So yeah, that, I... that was my perspective of humanity very early in life. Of course, I was very appreciative to my surgeons right. and the nurse, etc. Now, when I went to grammar school, my parents, my father was Presbyterian, my mother was Catholic, and uh, my in Los Angeles, and the Archdiocese of Los Angeles would not allow my mother to um, send us, my sister and myself, and the subsequent children to uh, 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 to public school, which, by the way, had better programs, areas for uh, athletics that were far um, superior to the Catholic school I was forced to go to because it was a donated property from a wealthy Catholic uh, actor. And it was mostly all asphalt, parking lot, church, and the school. And um, also, you had to pay tuition. And uh, with you know, you pay taxes. You're a homeowner. You can uh, go to public school. But my my mother was told by the bishop of uh, Los Angeles, the Cardinal McIntyre, actually, uh, that she could not receive communion uh, unless we went to a Catholic school. My father thought that that was not quite right. So I'm going to a Catholic school where people are supposed to be nicer, and and um, that wasn't the case. It could have been the same at public school. My point is, at a very early age, I started to see differences of behavior by other people when they would observe who who I was, what I looked like, but it's mostly what I looked like. Very few got uh, took the effort to get to know who I was or what I was about. Um, but I had a, a friend who had polio who looked normal, but he had these metal braces outside of his legs, and he walked uh, oddly. And I remember one day when a, a bully uh, tripped him, I helped him get back up on his feet, and I remember... The next thing I remember was being in the principal's office, and I was probably eight or, I don't know, maybe nine years old, maybe ten, saying, uh, why did you beat up this bully? <laughs> well, they didn't call him a bully, and I said, well, look, you know, this guy's walking, he's having difficulty walking, this guy, you know, attacked him, you know, and he was ready to, you know, cause more harm, and, you know, uh, grown-ups weren't taking care of business, so I took care of business. Well, that's not a really good way to proceed in your life, per se, to help other people and protect, yes. But back in the 1950s, children were to obey. Parents, I'm sure, were very glad that the war had ended. You know, we had the Cold War, which is mostly propaganda, mind control, and that kind of stuff. But the, the, the major fighting, well, Korea was held, and my father was there also. But my point is, if you weren't normal, you weren't accepted. Uh, if you remember television in black and white days, it was mostly family-oriented. Uh, uh, they tried to project, uh, you know, a nuclear family that was father knows best. There's a whole bunch of them, and um, it was a little bit naive. So, what kept me grounded was my grandmother and my father. Now, my father. We made house calls as as a doctor, 
and he would talk straight to me. He'd say, here, I'm going to see this patient. Here's their situation and condition. And I go, wow. I go, Dad, can't you fix them? You're a brilliant neurologist. And he goes, no, some things can't be fixed. You just have to deal with that situation. So I started to understand that um, we need to appreciate our limitations, and we need to uh, also appreciate uh, good mentoring. And my, my father was a great mentor. My mother was very supportive. My grandmother um, taught me to cook. She had lots of tales about coming from Europe to North Dakota before statehood. And, um, and I learned a lot of philosophy from my elders. Uh, we spoke earlier before you called uh, on, on uh, a few minutes ago about um, children uh, um, mentoring and um, the loss of uh, what I would say is the tribal community. Uh, I am, you know, okay, uh, Hillary said it takes a village. Uh, I'm not quoting her per se, but it, it, there's some, some things that ring true to that. So as society moves forward, um, the individual becomes uh, um, absorbed by uh, trends. Well, I've always been an individual by, uh, by circumstance. So uh, what I would say to my friends uh, who I have not met, who may be listening to this, or parents that have children with, uh, with differences, is that um, communication on, on a heart-to-heart level, by that what I mean is be, be honest. Don't sugarcoat, don't Pollyanna Pollyanna it. Be, be honest. And that really helps a child. Uh, in their developing uh, um, um, understanding of a particular medical condition. That's very powerful. Now, I, like you, I'm a strong believer in role models, people that we can look up to when we're children and, and look at them and say, yeah, you know, this is the way they solve these problems, and perhaps I can integrate that into my life. Now, there's always hope, an underlining hope, I feel, too, and I know there's new research going on at the Greenwood Genetic Center. I was just wondering if you were aware with, of, of that with Dr. Aned Shrivastava. It's in clinical trials uh, right now? Uh, I'm not. Uh, when we finish, uh, when we finish, you could uh, uh, give me, uh, I, I, we can talk one-on-one, and I'll give you my email address. You can send me a link to that. Sure, I'd be um, happy to. I, I've met a lot of wonderful doctors, and I, and I actually work with people like, uh, well, I met Paul Newman when I was doing The Crow, and he introduced me to um, the Bogey Creek and the Hole of the Wall Gang, which is out of St. Petersburg, Florida. They have a camp there that uh, invites uh, parents with children with facial cranial anomalies, and they were uh, conjoined with the uh, um, Florida uh, uh, Cranial Facial Society. And what they have there at this camp, they have a, a, you park your car, and you get on a train with rubber wheels, and they announce every family that gets on the train, and they take the entire family and the children, they take them to a beautiful little cabin that is that for each family. And then they have tons of stuff for the parents to do, to learn and, and, and have uh, uh, um, paperwork. Just a moment. Oh, you just turn it off. I just turned it off. Yeah. Um, I'm cooking. Um, We're on our way. There's 36 million Canadians on a bus right now. You're cooking? We're on our way. It's as simple as that. Oh, right on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's uh, mango and caramelized onion, pineapple-infused chicken. Oh, Um, buddy. So, 
what they have there is uh, surgeons that are the best in the, in the entire United States. And everything is free. They even have people house-sit people's homes, take care of their animals and critters, etc. so the entire family can be there to support the child in their, in their learning process. It takes about three or four days. It's called the Bogey Creek Gang. And when you go to the supermarket and you see a Paul Newman product, please purchase it and know that every single penny that is beyond the operational cost goes to support these wonderful organizations, kind of like the Shriners. So I was invited by, uh, um, uh, well, Paul, Paul Newman. Uh, when I was doing the crow, I was getting a wardrobe fitting, and Paul Newman was sitting opposite me at the table. And I was dressed like the Skull Cowboy, and we had a great conversation. And I talked a little bit about my dad. Next thing I know is that uh, he gave me a phone number, and, and we went uh, two years in a row. And I was in rooms with children that were going through uh, facial cranial reconstruction. At the time, uh, my wife and I were living in uh, uh, Arkansas, and um, I um, had... I just said to uh, the, the, the families and children, uh, you know, here's how I grew up. Here's what I dealt with surgeries. There was other surgeries also uh, because of the uh, malformation of hair follicles by glands and sebaceous glands under my arms, for instance. I've, I've had a major surgery twice on each arm, where they just basically removed everything that it could possibly find because they were malformed due to the premature birth caused by genetic uh, the uh, chromosomal de, uh, 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 damage from exposure to the a atomic and hydrogen bomb that my father uh, was blessed with. And by the way, after I was born, my mother had five miscarriages. So if anybody says that uh, nuclear energy, atomic energy, is a good thing, um, I, um, I choose to disagree. Uh, we ne it was never important, but that's another conversation. So... We're at the conference, and we're having uh, various groups and discussions and meetings. And then uh, uh, about the day before on the Sunday, getting ready to leave, uh, uh, one of the doctors comes up to me and he says, there's a young lady who's uh, 16. She's going to graduate this fall from high school, and she's had the following procedures to reconstruct her face, make everything better, and uh, she still needs more procedures. But she's refusing, and the parents can't afford it. The insurance won't pay for it. That's a whole other conversation. Everything should be covered, you know. Yeah, anyway, um, I said, well, how can I be of assistance? And he said, well, if you could talk to her, um, let her know that everything is it will be at no cost to her parents, and the best surgeons are right here. They've already checked her medical records and talked to her doctors and they're ready to, to finish this last procedure that she needs. I go, sure. So I had, sat down with this young, young lady, and I had a conversation. And I, I said, hey, look, I said, I had my skull reconstructed. I've had this and that done or whatever. But um, the edges of my eyes uh, were needed to be tightened up just a little bit because uh, that would get uh, dry eye. And my nose, I had trouble breathing. I had sleep apnea. My wife would say, roll over on your side because you're snoring really badly. And uh, so I needed to have my, my septum and my nose, uh, you know, cleaned up and fixed. Uh, that was a birth defect. Uh, and then uh, the other one was uh, they wanted to go in 
inside my cheek and make a tunnel and then take a little bag of, of a powder called hydroxyapatite and you add the infuse some of your own blood and then they sew it to uh, your cheekbone to support the lower uh, portion of your eye um, and that turns into bone well I'm asking this young lady, I says, well, have you had any of these procedures done that they want to do to me? And I said, I'm tired of being cut on and worked on and have abscesses open and sliced and diced. And I says, what should I do? And she she says, she holds my hand, pats it, and she says, well, when you get out of surgery, your face will be puffed up like a basketball, but it'll get better after that. I said, well, I'm kind of afraid. And I, I, I just baited her and I said, well, I, I'm afraid. I, you know, I, 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 I don't know what I should do. And she says, "You'll be okay." I said, "Well, let's. Could we come to a compromise?" And she says, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, I'm familiar with your history and your and your what your parents are set up to do for you, and I understand that you don't want to have another procedure." And she goes, "Not really." And I said, "Well." What do you know what the procedures are? And she she knew explicitly what they were. And then I had her explain to me how how the doctors and the uh, uh, professionals felt that it would ha- help her. And she explained to me her understanding of that procedure that was pending. And I said, well, well that, I says you're beautiful, uh, beautiful young lady. I said, and and I can see. And, and you be honest with them. And I said. Well, I can see how that would accent your cheekbone, and I would, you know, fix that little uh, crease in your palate and your lip there, and 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 I said that that's all really cool. I said I'll tell you what, you've given me the inspiration to get my procedure done, and at the time I was probably 43 years old, and I said let's do a handshake deal. I'll send you a picture of my face after surgery when it's all puffy and and ridiculous. If you will send me a picture after your procedure, and many, and I don't want a picture of after your procedure, but I want a picture of you in your prom dress at the prom after you've had your procedure. We do we have a deal? And she said yes. And uh, months and months went by. I had my work done. And I'll tell you what, she was exactly right. There was times I would get up and I'd go with my wife and kids to go out somewhere, and I go. Okay, and then I go, oh, no, 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 I have to lay down and rest my face because <laughs> um, it is a big deal. Well, the procedures went well for me. It took a while to recover, and they went very well for the young lady. Matter of fact, it was a beautiful enhancement to her persona. What a beautiful, sure inspiring enough, story. Wow. Well, and there it was one day, a letter in the mail with a picture of her and her date in her prom dress at the high school prom. I didn't go to my high school prom. Uh, I didn't date. Is uh, well, that's a whole other story. That that happened in college. But 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 my point is, um, the humanity of situations is what most people uh, oftentimes uh, never consider. Often, what people perceive as their own weaknesses are actually their strengths. I've seen this time and time well, again. I believe that the. Uh, um, Yes, it it can be. Uh, uh, I'm more akin to saying that it's like your metal and uh, your what we feel is our shortcomings because we are our own worst critic. And some of them were not by our own design. They're just like our lot in life. You know, something happened. And um, if we can't just 
make it different by, you know, link, you know, slap, clicking our heels together three times or whatever, then you know what, then it's, it's our bag of flesh. It's our situation. We as individuals have to accept who and what we are. Uh, escapism is in, comes in many forms, but if your behavior and your thoughts and your conscience and your intentions are, are something that you keep, keep track of and that you understand the consequences of your, of, of your energy that you put out, um, that's a really great thing to learn in, when you're younger. School doesn't necessarily teach that, but as we spoke earlier before we went on, on the air, um, uh, in a more tribal situation or in a family situation that's more uh, complete, uh, we have that mentoring available in youth. If you see it in nature, you'll see it with elephants, you'll see it with almost every, uh, every animal on the planet, including humans. Uh, insects, I'm not quite so sure. Um, but I, I, I believe that a lot of that has been lost in Western culture and, and, and other cultures. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's up to the community to help out and raise families. I, I think in the West we've lost that... That's the word I'm looking for. Tribalism is a pretty good word, I guess you could say, where we leave it up to the individual to struggle through with their own, and we don't really have that uh, human capacity anymore to uh, reach out and help people in a lot of cases. And we should. You touched on Medicare, for example. In Canada, we struggled for a long time to bring Medicare to the people for free. It's not free. We pay taxes for it, but that everybody would be covered. It's a human right. And this is something I think that will probably happen in the United States eventually. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Daily Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. www.nightfrightshow.com You believe me, don't you? I mean, you must wear that as a reminder. Mr. Jarvis, my religious convictions are hardly the issue here. But they are. How can you help Kevin if you don't believe? Even the killer, he believes. The town folk wonder why I sleep in on Sunday. Mass on Christmas, fish on Friday. You think that makes you a good Christian? Just because you don't understand sacrifice. Because you're unwilling. Don't think for a moment that you set the rules for me. I don't question his word. Whatever he asks of me, I'll do. Sit down, Mr. Jarvis. I just want to go to heaven. Hey! Don't! There's a lot of students listening right now that are probably in acting classes and they're tuned in. 
So I wanted to touch on The Hills Have Eyes. In 1978, you were nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Actor, folks, for The Hills Have Eyes. So I was going to ask you, how did you develop Pluto? And did you ever scare yourself when you were developing this character? I'll tell you why. I compose music for television and film. Actually, I just finished a couple of uh, projects with a fellow by the name of Anthony D.P. Mann for Bleak December Productions. And one of them was with David Warner, who I know you've worked with on Star Trek, and Tony Todd, I know you've worked with as well. And sometimes I know I'm doing the right thing when I'm composing music and I scare myself so much I have to turn the darn computer off and stop composing. Does that ever happen to you when you're creating a character? Well, um, uh, Pluto uh, came out, uh, I actually actually lived in the high desert uh, uh, for a number of years, and then I moved up to the higher mountains, uh, about 8,000 feet elevation, uh, about 7,000 feet elevation, San Bernardino Mountains called Big Bear. Um, I was very familiar with uh, the desert. I had done a lot of, had done a lot of camping and things of that nature. So when... When I met with Wes Craven, Peter Locke, and Barry Kahn, and uh, he told me the backstory of the McBean family, etc., uh, there is a scene in Hales Have Eyes where um, I have the I'm I'm observing from a high a high point of, of, of observation, and Wes wanted me before we attack the family, and I say, hey, they're easy pickings now. Wes wanted me to take my knife and do a real quick on on the boulder. At, uh, to anticipate the attack and uh, I understood the tension he was looking for in that particular shot but uh, I, I said no Pluto's knife would be razor sharp at all times and that would dull it so yeah I was very into uh, the role of, of, of Pluto I had been a long distance runner in college I used to run cross country etc I still had the heat issues it wasn't as, as prevalent as it is today it, it gets you know it, it, it gets uh, um, uh, onset quicker so that's a different something you got to be aware of but at night it was cold I like that in the daytime it did get pretty hot um, but I, we found the D Wallace and the rest of the white bread family as we call them um, and uh, then the uh, cannibal family we kind of uh, separated ourselves we would hang out uh, they wouldn't come and hang with us because we were kind of rough to them. So everybody, uh, Papa Jupiter, uh, Mars, and myself, we we pretty much stayed in character. We didn't really, uh, even when we went back to the hotel, um, it was kind of clickish. Uh, it it kind of worked. It wasn't by design. It just kind of worked out that way because I had done um, – well, it's my third film, but uh, Jimmy Whitworth, for instance, done a ton of westerns, and and, and a lot of the other kids, uh, uh, Susan Lanier and everybody else, they had done a lot of television. So they had met out in the and and nitty gritty. Uh, we didn't ha- we didn't have honey wagons. We had one trailer. You know, it, it was it, it was very bare bones as far as going out to the desert. And and the snake, by the way, that uh, Janice Blythe picks up was a Mojave Green. We didn't have a snake wrangler. Uh, production went to some local bar and, and, and asked around if anybody could get a rattlesnake, and some guy had one as his pet. Well, the Mojave Green is like a cobra venom. It's super deadly, and I knew about that. He got loose one day. We were sitting down having lunch in a ravine, and the snake got out of the box, and 
And uh, Janice actually picked it up and went to hand it back to the guy, and he about fainted, and Wes was about ready to have a heart attack. And he, he secures the snake, and I walk up to uh, Wes and Peter, and I go, hey, by the way, uh, and the guy was there, and I go, why do you have a snake for a pet? And he says, oh, it's, and I said, never mind. Uh, I said, those are more deadly than a rattlesnake. So and it was um, gritty, um, honest. And uh, when I play a role, I, I just pretty much immerse myself into that bag of flesh, so to speak. Uh, you got to memorize your lines. And, and I also learned from Cuckoo's Nest, 127 days working with Milos Forman. Uh, if you're into acting at all, you have to appreciate who does your lighting. You have to learn to appreciate, to enunciate and project so your sound people can hear you because you don't want to do it in post. You don't want to go to an ADR lab because you won't have the other actors around there. You don't have the same atmosphere of the scene. You don't have the same intensity. And if you're a director, uh, you want to get live sound. You want people to uh, um, know what they're doing. Uh, I've seen actors uh, mm -hmm. show up that are household names that don't even know how to hit their mark. Wow. You know, so there, there's a lot of technical aspects. When Milos Forman, he says, here's the eyepiece to this camera. Well, it was a Panavision camera. We had carbon arc lighting, which are rods that ignite, and they're the old ones they used to use for air raids and advertising. And they burn for so many minutes, and then when you get toward the end of the burn of the arc, it'll start to flicker, and that'll mess up a shot. So you had to make sure people knew their lines, the dialogue was correct, and, and everybody was on board and well-prepared. Be well-prepared. If you're learning lines, learn the lines of everybody in the scene with you so you know how to pace yourself. Also, when a, when sure. a camera operator takes a, a piece of uh, the tape measure and measures, you grab it and you, you hold it right to your where your cheek meets your eye. And then you want to remember when they put those little marks on the floor, you want to hit those marks without obviously looking at them. It's a skill you need to learn because all of those things matter. Mm -hmm. um, and I asked Milos, I said, so I'm looking through this beautiful camera, and he says, now, Stand in front of it. Look at the lens. I go, yes. He says, okay. I want you to have a love affair with the glass. And I took that to heart. So I asked the cinematographer, I said, what does that mean? He says, he says uh, talk, ask me that tomorrow. Well, tomorrow came and, and he handed me a book on cinematography. And I learned what an F-stop is. Yeah, so if you don't yeah. know what an F stop yeah, go ahead. you're an actor in front of a camera, uh, get a book on cinematography. And when you know what an F stop is, you're on your way to learn how to get rehired by producers and studios and directors. If you don't know what an F stop is, they're not just going to capture you every single time when you can't hit your mark twice in a row. Michael Berryman's our guest tonight, folks. All those links that he was talking about before. Hole in the Wall. Hole in the Wall. Hole in the wall and, and the other one is called the Bogey Creek. The Bogey Creek. So my apologies for that. All those links will be on our website, folks. So you can please do donate if you can. Good, worthwhile cause without question. Now, you had touched on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And... Where did you go to make up Ellis? Where did you go in your head to make well, up I, Ellis, the character Ellis? Well, Ellis had had a lobotomy, so that was a frontal lobotomy. That was skull surgery. I had had a craniectomy. My father was a brain surgeon. 
I used to go to my fa- uh, with my father to make rounds at hospitals and meet pay and not to meet the patients, but just to be there with him when he was tending to them. I also went with with my with my father uh, to people's homes when he would make house calls. I also have uh, I have two years of pre veterinary science uh, under my belt. Um, so uh, Ellis. Uh, having re- uh, read the book, of course, and seen the play with uh, Woody Strode playing Bromden and uh, uh, William Devane playing McMurphy at the Pasadena uh, Playhouse, which was marvelous. Um, uh, I, uh, because in, in the play, uh, the book is basically based on uh, the hallucinations of the chief. And when Ken Kesey was writing the, the screenplays, Michael uh, um uh, um, Douglas had told me we had lunch one day, and he said that Kesey had been sending him a screenplay for year uh, for years, and every rewrite was there were like 300 pages. I mean, they were they weren't screenplays. Eventually, there was a uh, you know uh, Kesey wasn't happy with uh, McMurphy being the, the the main central focus, and uh, it was always to Chief Brandon and his uh, allegorical uh, hallucinations. So. Um, Having known both of that, the bottom line was for Ellis, Ellis was the rambunctious one that was given lobotomy to as a punishment. So uh, my only tight close-up was at the end when Ellis, the vegetable, uh, the McMurphy that had been uh, 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 lobotomized, I was in uh, with Fred Phillips, a very famous, his father started the Makeup Artists Union, Fred Phillips, by the way, uh, designed Spock's ears from Star Trek. Fred Phillips is a master. He was my mentor. I, I had about an hour every morning, six days a week, uh, with Fred Phillips, and he would tell me stories of Hollywood. He was he was a wonderful, uh, wonderful man, philosophical, and brilliant. And uh, one morning, Jack Nicholson and I were both getting our lobotomy scars, and Jack was going, Fred, if you, he Fred wanted to. Uh, 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 shave a couple of hairs on Jack's forehead to put the scars and Nicholson goes, uh, they'll grow back, won't they? And I looked at Jack and I said, you big baby. I said, look at me. I said, mine didn't grow back from my, from my school surgery. And you're worried about, you know, what, 12 hairs on your freaking forehead. <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's only got a little, he's like me. You can't see me, but I've only got like a little bit of stuff on my forehead let that's left over right <laughs> after all these years <laughs> that's very funny you know christopher lloyd told me that that was his favorite character of all time he played do you have a favorite character i have a few I, um there's a movie called um below zero with eddie furlong we filmed it in canada and um i um um, you'd have to see the movie. Uh, there's a scene, uh, it's a very emotional role for me. Uh, um, I, I play a gunner. Um, I love that part. I also love my other favorite role is uh, uh, kept um, um, in the X-Files Season 3 Revelations, Owen Jarvis. I get to play a guardian angel. I love uh, that, by the way. Very I love that. Thank you. Uh, that was one of my all-time favorites. Also, um, the principal in the uh, c- uh, comedic uh, video with Motley Crue smoking in the boys' room. Uh, tremendously fun. Um, um, the weird science character, the, the mutant biker.
director, I had a chance to do a shout out to uh, um, 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 Red Skelton, who I went to school with his son, Richard Skelton. Uh, I used to go to the house uh, and his son uh, with Rich uh, and, and read comic books with Richard. Red would come into his son's room and read comic books with us and be a kid. So at the end, when I'm moving the bike out and I look over my shoulder and I go, God bless. I did that knowing, having studied how camera works and editing, that if you're moving to carry the vision out the door, it would be difficult to do a cut and then cut back to cut out my, my line. So I did it on purpose knowing that it would probably stay in, and it did. Well, you see, God bless was something that Red Skelton would say at the end of his show, which was live television. He would say, I want to thank our sponsors and thank, uh, for helping present this our, our evening entertainment to your family tonight, and good night for now, and God bless. The studio used to t told Red Skelton, said, you can't say God bless, it's too controversial. He said, it's my show. The studio told yep. him not to say God bless? Oh, my That's God. That's correct. Oh, my God. I heard, I heard this from Red Skelton's mouth. This is what Red Skelton told me. Let's talk about that X-Files so, episode, Chris Carter. Owen Jarvis, yes, guardian angel to young man named Kevin. He confronts Scully about her face. Your character confronts yes, Scully. What does faith, yes. what is your faith? Do you have a faith? Do you have a, I asked Jane Goodall this. I said, do you have a faith or something that you adhere to or follow? She said the golden rule. Would that sum it up for you? Yes. Uh, 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 I would say pretty much. Bottom line is I was raised Catholic, didn't have a choice in the matter. I thought it was pretty cool and groovy. Uh, I could read Latin in high school, took that as a language. Uh, I learned the catechism, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I was an altar boy. Um, there, was a, uh, there was a period of time where I was dissatisfied with being an altar boy, and uh, I, I won't say anything more about that other than uh, I know that the uh, perpetrator uh, is buried somewhere in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles would not tell me where he's buried. So enough said there. Um, so when I went to the Vatican uh, uh, on a visit while I was filming in Rome, I, I, I know their history. I know their dirty little history. I asked a few questions and then I was escorted out by the Vatican Guard. So, um, you know, go back to the Council of Trent, etc. My bottom line is this. Uh, what I learned in Catholicism was something about what Jesus had to say. And there was something uh, called the Eight Beatitudes and the Corporal Works of Mercy. I'm pretty spot on, and uh, I can roll with that. Um, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the infirm, and there's more. So, yeah, it's all about humanity first. There are two things in my philosophy, and, and no, I'm not a practicing Catholic, and I would never be a part of any organized religion ever and I haven't been for over 50 years, probably 60 years. So, if you're looking at a group of people and you want to get something across, which I've done before, I say the following. There are two things that cause most pain and suffering on the planet Earth with human beings. Two concepts. Number one, if you draw a line in the dirt, blood leaves people's bodies, people die. If you say, my God is better than your God, blood leaves people's bodies, people die. Those concepts must be removed from human interaction, period. 
Another example is this. Take your pointer finger, point it out, take your thumb, point it toward the sky. Take the other three fingers, point them toward your chest. I believe that the thumb represents inspiration from above, from a source higher than ourselves. Number two, what we put out with our pointy finger is our actions. What comes back threefold is a result of our intentions. I've got to ask you this. If if there's a young listener out there right now in a situation that you found yourself in, that you just mentioned, what would you say to them? If you're being bullied, being teased, or your maybe your house home life situation isn't uh, as best as it could be, understand the following. You can be emancipated, number one. Number two, eventually you'll be 18 and you can leave on your own accord. Number three, uh, you have the right to always, uh, you know, call 911 or whatever to be safe. But if it's not to, uh, to that level of, of uh, tension and it's just dissatisfying, it's I see you being bullied or people being mean, um, find out that the, you, will, you will know innately those things that are uh, special to you. Well, if you can turn your hobby into your career, things that you love to do, and hopefully they're good, you know, they're benevolent things, you know, um, that is your, that's your ticket to freedom, that's your ticket to understanding who you are. And you will, you will eventually find those people in your life. You like it. People are attracted to that, which is similar to themselves. You know, adventure is, is, is a little bit different, you know, climbing a mountain or going out in the woods or sailing across around the world or something. But my point is when you're in school, they try to say, you know, you need to find a career. Sometimes you don't know what your career is going to be, but if, but if you, learn everything you can about those things that are that are of interest to you that becomes a structure that becomes a matrix to which you learn how to learn and if somebody says well you know that's not really my cup of tea uh, i like to do this that's totally fine and you can share the, the you know you can share with one another that which is of interest to you but if you're a kid and you think you're trapped and life's never going to get better, know that that's, that it will get better if you learn to look in the mirror and go, you know what, you're a good guy, you're a good gal, and if your situation is not the best, um, it, it will get better if you, uh, you know, don't get distracted with trying to please other people or to get other people to accept you. If they don't want to accept you, if you're being honest and you're a decent person, you know what? Walk away from them. Let me ask you this. When you were a kid, you were going through the abuse, you were going through the bullying and everything. Do you take some of those adults that were doing that to you or some of those kids? And is it your way of creating a character by taking some of those characters and being able to control them when you make a character on film? For example, Pluto, did you draw upon from a bullying experience or an abuse experience to integrate that into your character? I, I, I didn't, uh, no. Uh, in that particular character, Pluto, uh, the bullying or any of that, no. Uh, Pluto, um, um, uh, I, I was an Eagle Scout. I'd done a lot of camping, uh, uh, survival camping, all that kind of stuff. I was a scuba diver, uh, climbed trees, uh, chainsaws, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I basically looked at how would, and I've lived in the desert, so it's like, 
uh, okay, uh, Pluto is a survivalist. He's sinister. He's clever. Uh, Pluto's the one that put the, uh, you know, um, you know, all the, uh, like when they drove off the side of the road. I'm the one that put the bunny rabbit there, so they would drive off the road, that kind of stuff. When Pluto goes into the trailer, um, uh, I was reloading, had an NRA card when I was 12 years old. I was, I'm an expert sharpshooter. Not too happy with people having machine guns, and I, I think that's stupid, but um, uh, that's another conversation. Um, so I, I had Pluto designed in my mind as being um, nothing left to chance. So when Mars and I are leaving, and he's after the attack on the trailer, if you notice, before that, Pluto is in and he's stealing the meat. I steal the hatchet. I steal all their bullets. I look at the door in the refrigerator, and next time you look at Hills Have Eyes, you'll see there's two soda cans and there's two apples. Pluto doesn't want those. He wants more substantial stuff. So when Mars says, yeah, well, they still got a gun, what does Pluto say? Yeah, well, I've got the bullets. Okay. I created yeah. Pluto I get to be totally grounded and realistic. You said a lot of things that reminded me of a good friend of mine, Ted Sorensen, especially the line in the sand, because he told me how they went through the Cuban Missile Crisis. And folks, for those of you that are unaware, Ted Sorensen was JFK's speechwriter, but he was more than that. He was also one of his closest aides. And it was Sorensen that actually wrote the letter to Khrushchev to get him back down during the Cuban Missile Crisis, or we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. That's how close we were. We were that close. He told me that Jackie had called Jack to come back to the White House. Uh, she wanted to come back to the White House with the kids because they all believed that they were going to be dead the next day. The attacks were about wow. to start. Yeah, uh, nobody knows that. But, yeah, that's how close we were. So when you said uh, one in the... It's terrifying. Yeah, it really is. So when you said line in the sand, that reminded me of something he said, which was dialogue before bullets. Uh, Kennedy knew that they could always attack the Soviets anytime they wanted to. But in order to save mankind, they had to find another way. And I want to read this quote by Michael because it is stunningly parallel and succinct to one that a very famous quote that JFK uh, said in his speech that Sorensen wrote for him. Here's Michael's quote. We all live on the same planet. It is our only home. So we used to rotate crops back in the day. And you know, who cares if you're going to make a profit if everybody's too dead or glowing in the dark to be able to purchase anything? That's Michael's quote. Now, listen to this JFK quote from June 10th, 1963, called this peace speech. And you've probably heard this before. Our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this planet. We all breathe the same air, we all cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal. Your comments, wow. where did you go? Again, how did you come up with this wonderful, beautiful, inspiring quote? This is just who you are. Well, it is uh, uh, who I am. My father used to take me uh, on rounds, like I said, to hospitals and see patients so I could understand basically uh, not to play my violin and feel self-pity. We're all given our lot in life. You can be beautiful, hence, uh, you can be beautiful, fantastic, wealthy, a great person, blah, 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 slip on a bar of soap in a shower and crack your head and then have, you know, and have, have a caregiver 24-7 and lose your ability to be fantastic. Okay, that's our mortality. That's our humanity. So, 
um, every day is a gift. Uh, I learned a long, 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 long time ago to accept that. And what I put into my mantra is, um, you know, I used to you know, pray, get on my knees, do all of that structure. And I finally said, well, you know what? Uh, my heart beats. I take a breath. So I kind of gathered all of the essences of me and I said, hey, look, every time, here's my inspiration. Here's my intent. Here's what I want to project. Here's what I want to say. This is the spark. Every time my heart beats, it's just, it's like a mantra, whatever. When my heart beats, it's sending a message that says all what we just discussed. And every breath is a precious gift that allows me to continue on to the next day. It's moment by moment. You know, you, you can, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it is definitely all connected. What happens to the, it's like in Star Trek. I remember ta- having many breakfasts at shows with uh, Major Barrett about Gene's vision and just like, you know, Spock, you know, uh, uh, even on the Big Bang, they mentioned the one where, where the uh, uh, the needs of the mi- uh, many outweigh the means of the uh, of of a few. few. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's funny how uh, uh, I always get a little smile and twinkle in my eye when I realize uh, science fiction, art, art is a window into the soul. You know. So, uh, and there's a lot of crap out there. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, uh, good works, uh, you know, good art, a good story, um, good film, good book. Um, There's the damn music, a good song. They make a difference. Right. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Please do not be a stranger. I would love to have you back on around Christmas time. You're so inspiring, and I know so many people get down around that time. That would be wonderful if you would. Oh, no, no. I've got, I, I have some very funny stories. Okay. That'd be great. Michael Berryman, folks, just go to our website. All those links that we were mentioning earlier on will be there for you. I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. Thank you, Michael, for joining us tonight and inspiring us all. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time.